All right. How have we never covered week two? Week two. Another thrilling round of matchups. Uh, a rousing success, you I, could call both weeks. I so think far. so, yes. Uh, nothing has tapered off yet. Uh, we'll look back here at how this all came to be uh, with today's champion, uh, which is, of course, Spirited Away, uh, which to me felt inevitable. I don't know about y'all, uh, but even when I made the first draft of that, that uh, tournament, that kind of felt like uh, definitely a finalist, if not the, the winner. Knowing our listenership, yes, yeah. I think it was a yeah, high probability. I tell you what, I sure did have to eat my hat on that one. Uh, week one, I, I was real proud of myself calling early. And week two, I decided I was going to get out there early, come out there with a big prediction. And I was wrong. But uh, I can see why. I see why the people uh, like the, the Spirited Away so much. What did you end up calling, Dalton, for the winner? Oh, I'm pulling up a bracket for last week right now uh, that you mentioned it, Dustin. Give me just one moment. It turns out we posted a lot of dadgummed brackets in the last uh, week or so. <laughs> Right. It's kind of flooded, so yeah. There's, yeah, there's a lot of scrolling happening in the feed right now. Um, nope, that's this week. Let me let me uh, run down. I, it was something stupid. It was Inside Man. I know it was Inside Man because it just dominated in the first round. Well, well, yeah, Arthur, you can read the matchups, and I think uh, yeah, real post game on too. Real quick here, we had Leon the Professional and Basic Instinct, Inside Man and Heat, Sin City and Pitch Black, Fast Times at Ridgemont High and Spirited Away, Book Smart, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Strange Days, Inception, Men in Black, Josie and the Pussycats, Marie Antoinette, and The Fugitive. There you go. That's right. I think you I were pretty big sure. on Marie Antoinette as well. I think I was pretty sure it was going to come down to Inside Man and Marie Antoinette. Yeah, because they both just really came out of the gate super duper strong. And uh, hey, I like to be wrong. Believe it or not. I do believe it. I do. I do. So Spirited Away uh, just dominated the competition going past uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Pitch Black, and Leon the Professional. Uh, but the other side, I think, was a little more surprising as Booksmart proved to be the little engine that could. Uh, Boy, howdy. Pushing out Did it ever. Uh, Ferris Bueller and Inception uh, before eking out by a hair uh, a win over Men in Black. Uh, and then Spirited Away kind of just continued to dominate uh, into the finals. Um, and I think it was really interesting that both the, uh, I think the biggest win and the closest win both came in those semifinal matches when uh, Spirited Away just routed Leon the Professional and uh, like I said Booksmart just barely scraped past Men in Black. Uh, we were maybe a vote or two votes away from Men in Black being in the finals but I, I still think Spirited Away was going to take it no matter what. I am picking up a certain logic in the uh, way in which our, uh, our, our picks are going. It, it is definitely they're picking the those who are voting their favorite movies, not movies they want to make us watch. Correct. You know, like like a challenging movie or uh, something that's sort of just out of kilter. You know, for instance, I would think a movie like Basic Instinct might really do well. Yeah. If you're like, we're going to make these guys do an erotic thriller. We've never done an erotic thriller ever in the history of the show. Well, and I want to keep it that way uh, because <laughs> I think it might get just too sensual, uh, if I'm being honest. Uh, I don't know. I think Shrek back in uh, week one. Uh, it's an erotic a little thriller bit of too. that energy. Well, it's an erotic thriller, but also, yeah, the, the listeners, dadgummit, did they want to make us watch that? Uh, but I, I think the, the Shrek vote also just enjoys Shrek and finds it interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, I find it interesting uh, that we are now covering the film that won uh, Best Animated Feature uh, at the Oscars the year after Shrek. Um, yeah. That's that's fun. I don't know. That's, that's a weird... Uh, quirk of the uh, of the tournament 
I know. Uh, it is interesting. So, yeah, that that's it. That that was week two. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about week three at the end of this show. Uh, but, yeah, we're talking Spirited Away. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Honorcast. We gather around a table and we discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film today's course. This week's film, as you already have heard, is Spirited Away. And we are so excited to be talking about it. I am still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I am still Dalton. And, yes, it turns out if it wins in a tournament, we will discuss a film you'll discuss in a film studies course. Yeah, sometimes that will happen, and I think this movie could come up. It could be a thing that would make its way into a syllabus in various I, ways. I should think so, yeah. In fact, we're going to discuss here in a little while uh, ways in which it might make it on, onto a syllabus, because this is the format of this show. It is not a review show. It is an analysis show, and that does mean there are spoilers. And so what we try to do at the opening of the show is we give a generally uh, spoiler, you know, clean uh, reading of a synopsis. Then we give thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, which tend to tread lightly in the spoiler territory. And then we really get into the land of the spirit uh, once we get into uh, this uh, expanding the syllabus thing. And so that does have some spoilers uh, apparent and uh, present in those moments. And then we finally move on into analysis. And that's when all spoiler bets are off. And we find out that indeed uh, Chichiro was a sled the whole time and uh, yes she was she was a sled um whatever the spoiler happens to be we'll we'll get right into that at that time so you've been warned your listener uh, without any further ado my uh my, my lovely wife kept voting uh, for spirited away thinking it was actually spirit uh the the animated the horse, horse movie? movie uh which was pretty cute <laughs> Which was also nominated, uh, I believe, the, the horse movie, Spirit of the Cimarron? Are we talking about yeah. Spirit? Is it just Spirit? It's Spirit something, something, something. It's got a subtitle. Yeah. yeah. I, some, something of the Cimarron, though, right? I think yeah, so. I, I, that movie, nominated for Best Picture, uh, Best Animated Feature, same year as Spirited Away. It's a lot of fun. That's confusing. A little so, bit. Well, there you go. Sure, sure is. How many Americans went to see Spirited Away thinking it was the horse movie is the better question. Very good question. Doesn't matter because it already made $200 million. Even better question is how many walked out when they found out what they got (laughs) instead of the horse movie. Because, man. Now that, I would say probably 9 out of 10 who thought it was the horse movie. When is this big baby going to ride the horse? I need to know. (laughs) I want that that baby on a horse. That's. I was just about to say the same thing. Nobody puts a baby on a horse. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my. Well, I think without any further ado, let's go ahead and hear that synopsis, please, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Hayao Miyazaki's Best Animated Film Oscar winner broke mainstream ground for the Japanese studio Ghibli. Chihiro and her family are moving to a new town. As they try to find the new house, Chihiro's dad takes a wrong turn and they wind up at an abandoned amusement park. The family begins to explore the park, much to Chihiro's distress. As evening falls, things start getting strange. Chihiro's mother and father are turned into pigs, and she's rescued by a mysterious boy named Haku. He tells her she must get a job with the lady of the bathhouse, Yubaba. At the bathhouse, Chihiro is introduced to a number of spirits and creatures. Chihiro must try to find a way back to the human realm, saving her parents along the way. Awesome, awesome. Well done, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I appreciate that very much. So let's hear those thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. What do we think about this movie? I'm going to go to you first, Dalton. This is your first time as well as mine, correct? Yes, indeed. It is my first watch of this film. Um, Now I have four uh, Miyazakis in the bag, but only two two Studio Ghiblis, interestingly enough. I've I've got all of his early work uh, crossed off. Uh, Man, it's been a while since we watched something for the show, and I pretty much immediately afterwards thought, Oh, man, I'm too dumb for this one. (laughs) 
been a while since we had that happen, which, uh, for, you know, by my definitions uh, means I, I need to watch it, needed immediately to watch it again because I just could feel it going over my head in its entirety. Um, and, and I say that to the movie's benefit. I, I see the magic. Uh, I definitely see what people like. I think it is a case of um, just absolute uh, sensational overwhelmment. Uh, you know, I, we've, we've watched some pretty uh, challenging films for the show. I like to watch challenging films. Um, by challenging, I don't necessarily mean the subject matter's rough. I just mean that there's a lot going on and a lot of ideas and a lot of stimulation being thrown at your, your brain and your eyeballs. Uh, but man, I, I, I think the combination of my uh, lack of knowledge about Japanese folklore and Shinto and Hayao Miyazaki's boundless imagination uh, really did uh, do it to me. Uh, now, all of that said, while I uh, don't feel smart enough for this film, I do like it quite a bit, uh, enough that I've been watching scenes uh, from it while we were setting up the call to, to record, uh, because it is just such a feast to, to look at. Um, and this is the part where I will bring up, man, I like that cartoon food, huh? I love food I can't eat. I love it so much. Uh, the prettiest cartoon food you ever did see appears in this film. Uh, and to not get too ahead of ourselves in terms of spoiler talk, uh, I'd have been right there with Chihiro's parents, like the big dumb idiot that I am, uh, which is why I think this movie's for me uh, in terms of trying to remind me that I'm a big dumb idiot, not in the sense that it's definitely 14-year-old girls uh, for Miyazaki, uh, which, I, I yeah, I, I think that there is a specificity to this film that does kind of capture the heart. Um, in his review that he, or revisit, rather, uh, that he wrote in 2012, Roger Ebert, said something to the effect of that, you know, when films try to be for everybody, uh, they're almost always going to miss the mark. But when films are for a specific audience, when they are about something specifically, uh, it does have a tendency to kind of capture uh, the magic. And I, I, I have a, uh, for sure agree with that. Um, despite the fact that I was just overwhelmed by the cool, the cool heads bouncing around, Yababa's big ass head and big ass nose. Um, I love it. I love every freaking weird character in the corner of the margins of this film. And that really just distracted me to no end uh, in, in a way that I really liked. Um, but yeah, I, I understand the plot of this film more or less. It's fun. Dustin makes that joke about somebody turning into a sled all the time. Uh, and it could have happened in this one. Um, <laughs> but I don't think the listeners need to hear me continue to say dumb things like, oh, I sure do like the, uh, the furnace man's cool Dr. Robotnik mustache. Um, <laughs> I do like it. Uh, so I'm just going to go ahead and say, yeah, I like this movie a lot. I know I need to rewatch it. Uh, I can't wait for us to kind of crack it open and really talk about how it makes us feel and think. Um, but in terms of review, yeah, I feel a little overwhelmed by it. It's not, you know, upon wrapping up, it's not my favorite Miyazaki right away of the ones I've seen. Uh, that honor still goes to Mononoke. But, you know, that movie's got fights and stuff, and I'm a big dumb idiot who likes fights. Uh, so, you know, it's in my wheelhouse a little bit more and draws me in that regard, but there is a sensation, uh, that I think Arthur has described when we've talked about Miyazaki on the past in the show, uh, in the past on the show, um, that, and I totally understood what Arthur meant for the first time, I think, because you, you've kind of expressed a similar, uh, overwhelming, uh, feature to the ones we've watched, or quality to the features we've watched already, Arthur, uh, at least I remember you saying so about, uh, uh, Nausicaa, not so much Lupin, um, which we just watched. But yeah, uh, that's that's what I think. I think I like it so much it made my brain swell a size, and I wasn't ready for it. Very good, very good. Thank you for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Mr. Arthur Gordon, do you like Spirited Away? 
I tell you what, this is one of the best looking animated films I think I've ever seen. This this movie is just absolutely gorgeous. I watched it on HBO Max, and and the the version they have there is just insanely beautiful. I'd seen it before, I think, on DVD, uh, but watching it digitally this time just really did that animation justice. Whoo, boy, howdy! It's it's pretty. It is pretty to watch. Um, and similarly, it's got a great score, man. Uh, just a luscious score. It, it really reminded me a lot of kind of a a forties melodrama score in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, for sure. I, I, yeah. I really dug that about it and the way it swelled and hit those notes and, and then the effect that had in those moments of silence. Uh, that first instance where she goes into the boiler room, there's a pretty extended sequence of silence as she's trying to kind of get her bearings in there. And I think it makes it more impactful uh, in a lot of ways. And so I, I really appreciate the the just technical display and artistry of Music and animation working together and coming together and, you know, a score that knows uh, how to be properly used in, in a film and, and underscore the silent moments and things like that and kind of a juxtaposition of, of technique, I think. Um, like like Dalton said, this, this is a fantastic world design. This weird spirit realm that uh, Chihiro enters is just, I, I've said it a few times, it's nightmare fuel. It is just it is. surreal and absurd and scary. Uh, there are creatures in there that just freak me out to no end. Uh, in particular, the giant baby uh, gets me every time. Uh, it just I don't know. Oversized babies just freak me out. The, uh, the soothing voice of uh, Tara Strong uh, didn't didn't soothe that at all. No, no, just ah, too bad. <laughs> frightened me worse. Um, <laughs> I think uh, you know. I, I I think it's one of the, one of the Toy Stories. I think it's two or three. I think it's three. Uh, there's a baby doll, uh, which is, you know, compared to juxtaposition uh, next to the other toys is rather large and uh, a bit scary. And I had that similar feeling. It doesn't kind of feels like maybe a callback to Spirited Away in some regards. Um, but what Miyazaki does here is just, I think, beautiful and fascinating. And, and Ebert's review, I, I read that as well. And he, you know, points out that how every frame of the animation is alive and moving and detailed more so than what we're used to with American animation and also the meditative nature of this film. I was telling Dustin off air, I watched it late and it was a struggle and that's not a knock against the film because it is just a more meditative text by nature. And if you can kind of saddle in and get on its level and read, you know, uh, calibrate from American animation and, and slow yourself down. I, I think it really, really hits home. This is the second time I'd seen it, and just man, it, it's something. I, I, I think it's something special, and so I, I really dig it. Really enjoy it. Um, yeah, definitely, definitely a, a two thumbs up from this guy. Very good, very Arthur, good. Go ahead. Yeah, an, an observation you made, Arthur, that I think is really interesting. The only like American animated feature that comes to mind is having like this level of detail and movement in every frame uh, as something like uh, Into the Spider-Verse, yeah. which is not a meditative film. I mean, it's got a lot on its mind and on its heart, but it moves. It's, you know, it is an action film. Yeah. Um, so, so it's interesting that the only time that an American, you know, feature uh, that, and again, that's a lot of mostly digital uh, in that film, but a lot of hand-drawn aspects to it. But it is interesting when we get that level of detail. Yeah, it is an, it's doing something entirely different. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up because it is not only much like Miyazaki's work, all of his work, uh, but this film's jam-packed with detail. It is also 
taking its damn time to get where it wants to go. Yeah, and when you're coming out of the the world of Disney, we're probably getting a little of analysis here, but coming out of the world of Disney where they're running tight 80-minute ships over there and just all meat and no fat on the bone, uh, to have something like this is is a real you know change of pace. Uh, for sure. So, yeah. For sure, for sure. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I also uh, agree with the sort of transcendental meditative pace and how um, you do have to be wide awake. Um, I was um, watched this movie in snatches between uh, fourteen mile hikes in the Colorado Rockies, and uh, here he goes again, bringing up his friggin' vacation. And I had trouble staying awake, though. I mean, I did. Now, not because it was boring, but because I mean, it just is that quiet. And uh, when you're bone tired at any point, I mean, you 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 need a cup of coffee, you know, or, or a good snort of meth or something, uh, just to you know. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but you do need to be prepared and wide awake to do what you're doing and uh, because it is not shrek it is not <laughs> into the spider verse it is uh, a, a thought provoking uh, again I, I think about um paul schrader and I'm, i don't think this is going to come up in analysis but just as i was listening to you guys talk i did think about paul schrader's uh, transcendental cinema and or transcendental films uh, his uh, meditation on tarkovsky and ozu and uh bresson and uh, it is of a, of a similar kind of cloth, really, Miyazaki's work here. Uh, I mean, even like the uh, Secret World of Arietti, I don't think any of you have seen that particular sort of borrowers, you know, um, sort of elves and fairies living in the backyard film uh, from Ghibli. And uh, it's, it's uh, in, in terms of pacing, it's a similar cloth. Uh, and uh, it is, you know, a movie that you do need to be fully attentive to. And when you are attentive to, it does reward your attention. It is a really rewarding film. There's there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on in its mind. And it does sort of give you moments to think and to meditate. And also moments to just sort of, I don't know, uh, the word sort of wallow in the horror and the grossness of uh, particular moments. Um, as long as it, there's a, uh, a slow motion slap of a character who is transformed early in the film. And it takes way too long for that to happen. And uh, because the movie just sort of wants you to, again, kind of rest in the violence. Um, yeah, in, in Ebert's review, he talks about interviewing uh, Miyazaki uh, at a film festival. And, and Miyazaki had a word. Uh, he says there's a word for this in Japanese. It's called ma, which means emptiness. It's there intentionally. Uh, the time in between my clapping is ma. If you just have nonstop action with no breathing space at all, it's just busyness. And I, I think it's yeah really interesting how that's ingrained into the DNA. Yeah, it's a strong amount of mall. And I, I think you could apply that term to Tarkovsky um, or to Bresson or Ozu as well, and uh, another Japanese filmmaker there. So uh, I think there's some cultural connectivity, connective tissue as well. I didn't really think about that for syllabi or analysis either, but I think Ozu may be a good pair just to throw that out there. But yeah, I mean, by saying these words and sort of referencing these sort of filmmakers, uh, I am saying that I like this. I'm saying that this is <laughs> it's in your wheelhouse. Yeah, this is this is good stuff and uh something I really, really dig. And it's weird. And so you add that to the mix. Ozu's not weird really. I mean there's some strangeness, there's some absurdity, but he's not weird in the same kind of way. And uh, you know, you you just add that to the mix and it is a particular cocktail that I enjoy quaffing. So uh, there you go, dear listener. We are uh, big fans of Spirited Away. So Without any further ado, let us move then to expanding the syllabus. You are teaching a film studies course or other course on a 
undergraduate or graduate level, and you're going to use Spirited Away as part of that, either one week's reading or view, reviewing, I guess I should say, or it's part of a module that may be themed. You have a lot of freedom in how you construct uh, your use of this film in a class, e either a particular class or in a set of classes or in within an entire semester. And so uh, tell us what you would do, how you would do it, and uh, what you would appendicize this film with. What would you, how would you expand the syllabus? And I go to you first, Arthur. What set you? Yeah, so I, I thought a lot about this. As I mentioned, Nightmare Fuel. And I, I would imagine sitting down as a kid to watch this movie would be horrifying. <laughs> yeah. I, I think about that a lot. And so I kind of wanted to tap into that idea of horror imagery and surreal imagery in, in children's film and family film. Um, because we don't see it a lot. Uh, and sometimes when you do see it, it does get to be well done. Uh, and so I've kind of put together a course of, of international and domestic films that kind of tap into horror imagery and surreal imagery at, I think, different sort of uh, developmental levels or grade levels. So kind of start them young and you can work your way up through this, these films as, as the children grow uh, and, and you kind of are able to sit with them and discuss these films and the relevance of the imagery. Because I think some of these movies are pretty, you know, layered and, and symbolic of, of different things. So I, I would start probably with uh, Disney and I'd start with Fantasia. Um, the the classic musical, which has some very horrific segments in it, some very scary gothic upholding imagery. Oh, that Hall of the Mountain King uh, usage of Mickey and the uh, broomsticks is, yeah, it's, it's terrifying. Yes. Yeah, there's that big buff demon. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So you kind of introduce them to some music stuff and some, uh, I think, gothicism or, you know, fables and heaven and hell type imagery and kind of uh, operatic grandioseness. Um, from there, I would probably... I think stick uh, with a lower age range, and I would actually go with Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island. I've been seeing this movie <laughs> pop up quite a bit, frankly, and I kind of think it'd be fun to do on the show one of these days. Uh, it may be the best of the uh, Scooby-Doo movies. I'm not averse. Uh, uh, it, in total, you know, even the live action. But uh, this uh, has uh, them set in the bayou, if I remember correctly, and uh, they uh, encounter some mystical creatures, including, I believe, some like werecats or something wild like that. Uh, yeah, and it gets pretty dark for a Scooby Doo story, and so I think that would just be a fun uh, way to ease some more of that imagery in, and maybe play it with some classic Universal uh, horror stuff, or maybe like the Cat People and, and Ooh, things like yes. that. Give me that Turno, um, Black Cat, and have some fun with it. There, uh, I, I meant Schrader's Cat People. Oh, the show that to like a six-year-old. Oh my gosh! No. <laughs> uh, after that, I would go with I think Coraline. I think Coraline actually pairs really well with. Uh, spirit away, uh, especially the idea of children and parents and that kind of disconnect and, and what that looks like. The throughout. mommy issues are definitely a through line, yeah. Yeah, and, and viewing your parents uh, through the lens of a child and, and the kind of built-in, I think, fear and curiosity and concern that kind of comes with that relationship that uh, I think is obviously one of the more strategic and, and fascinating to kind of navigate as the parent and the child. And I think Coraline really taps into some primal fears in some really smart ways. And we may even read uh, the source material from Gaiman himself and, and kind of pair all that together. After that, I would go, I think, with Hocus Pocus. Um, go back to Disney because nice. uh, it's a fun and it's light, but there's also some pretty heavy stuff in there. The, the, the kind of Salem Witch stuff as well as... Uh, a lot of stuff about like virgins and killing virgins and things of that nature, which is another next tier, I think, for a Disney movie. But in the mid 90s, I guess it just kind of flew by because 
Bette Midler's out here just singing her heart out. Uh, and so I, I go there next. And I'll see Doug Jones is uh, the, the zombie. It was a lot of fun. All right. Um, after that, I want to go a little more mature, and I think the next stepping stone is going to be scary stories to tell in the dark. I, I love this movie. I think it's a great introductory text uh, for young people into horror, a good gateway drug, if you will, into horror. And also some smart commentary about war and life and death and, and the inevitability of death. I think it's just really smart in a lot of ways. Now, this think, is an anthology film, right? Uh, not not quite. It, it's, uh, it follows a single group of characters, but it's about stories coming to life. So it kind of has an anthology feel. Obviously, the books are anthologies. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I just hadn't seen it, so I'm, 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 I want to know more. Tell me more. Yeah, so it adapts, obviously, those stories. I think it tackles like four or five of these stories, but instead of doing like an Twilight Zone style anthology, it uh, hooks a narrative where there is this lady in town who wrote these stories and they all start coming to life when you read them. Uh, and so I think it's a fun way to play with that dynamic and, and get away from the anthology thing and, and still incorporate elements of anthology. Is it better than Goosebumps? Yes. Okay. I think you'd dig it. Okay. There's I, some really cool... It sounds like the kind of thing I'd like. Dalton, have you seen it? Have you no, I didn't, get around, I didn't get around to it, unfortunately. I, I was very curious. I remember reading some of those uh, as a youth. And I'll tell you what, those illustrations and those original scary stories to tell them dark books are... Uh, yeah, they're not more mayor fuel. They're terrifying. I think, uh, it, but no, I haven't got the movie. Yeah, and I think the movie does a great job of bringing those illustrations to life in a very unsettling way. And there's one with the a, a, a white blobish woman in a red room, and it's just some great cinematography, a great sequence in the film, and and I think it's just uh, a lot of fun. Uh, from there, I want to mature quite a bit and go with a couple of Mexican entries on this list. I'm going to go with a double feature of Tigers Are Not Afraid and Pan's Labyrinth, nice. and get into all of the kind of illusions and allegory that comes with those dark fairy tales and how uh, del Toro navigates that with his kind of political history, as well as tigers are not afraid dealing with the cartel and the impact of the cartel on everyday life in Mexico. I think they're just, you know, two very smart uh, spiritual films that work together really well. And so that's kind of how I would navigate this and kind of slowly show how you could, introduce children into this world of horror and kind of mature them through it uh, with these uh, picks and, and show them how to have that conversation with the text. To teach them in the dark arts. I love it. Yes. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Well, hey, Dalton, what class do you teach and how are you expanding the syllabus? Well, um, I'm going to be going back to the well uh, a little bit on, on this one. And what I mean by that is uh, I'm going to be picking some films that are kind of favorites of ours around here. Either we've talked about them uh, as episodes on the show uh, or they're just films that we all uh, have expressed uh, an appreciation for because uh, I needed to ground myself. Like I said, I, uh, I felt quite adrift with this film, but I, I do like a lot of what it's doing, what it's going for. Uh, and I did very early on, uh, you know, we learn um, that, uh, a big uh, kind of window dressing, uh, or not even window dressing, but context uh, contextualizing thing for this film uh, is uh, being reminded of the the economic bust in Japan in the 90s uh, and how that led to all these abandoned amusement parks. Um, so I've kind of built a syllabus that is going to be engaging with uh, the kind of the, that's uh, things that are, I guess, rhyme with spirited away. Not necessarily are all of these films going to be fantasy films. In fact, some of them are going to explicitly not be fantasy films, uh, but they're all going to have kind of a dreamy quality. It's hidden worlds and social ills. Uh, we can bear anything if it's in a fairy tale. Uh, so we're going to be looking at different kind of coming-of-age stories um, and how those comings-of-age can intersect with uh, the world that you're 
you know, growing up in the world you're coming of age in uh, and how, you know, the social and economic factors uh, in there are going to not only impact your life, but also impact uh, the fairy tale. Um, in any story worth its salt. Um, so it is going to be kind of a, another uh, entry in my uh, intro to sociology classes that uh, where we just mostly watch movies. Uh, but, you know, we'll supplement. I'll make you read something. But I am going to do something that does, Dustin has done before on the show, uh, where I have actually kind of thought about how the class is segmented out. So it'll be kind of uh, three pods of films uh, that we'll be looking at together. And each one uh, of these pods uh, has a... Uh, def, uh, a film that's explicitly a fairy tale, uh, one that just has some uh, fantastical elements, and one uh, that is pretty much um, only, its magicalism is only realism, if that makes sense. So let's get on with it. Uh, our first pod is going to be Spirited Away, uh, starting things off, uh, because I do think that there's just, again, there is something kind of magical and weird uh, about it that I, I find uh, kind of enrapturing. Um, and next, we will be moving into uh, a little bit later phase of growing up, and we'll be looking at the French film Girlhood. Uh, now, again, not uh, a fantasy film by any stretch of the imagination, but our lead character in this film does find herself kind of swept up uh, in a fantastical life with her, uh, her new friends, her, her girl gang. Um, and they are uh, having, we talked uh, about that film at length on this show once before, so I won't belabor the point too much, uh, but there is uh, a really great scene where they're, uh, the, the coolest thing that they can imagine doing together is getting some prom dresses and getting a hotel room together and getting drunk and dancing. Shine bright like uh, a diamond. That's right, and there is just a magical quality to that kind of whole sequence of the film uh, that I, I think is really great. Uh, the last film we'll be doing is going to be kind of tied to Spirited Away uh, in that it is very much centered on a river uh, and that is going to be uh, the, the film The Host, which we covered not long ago here on the show. Uh, again, another film where uh, social issues um, are kind of uh, in the background of the film. They are not really announcing themselves. And I think that's really the case with all three of these films. Um, they are very much set in a specific time and place. But that context is not only is it not in the foreground, but it's such a huge part of the background that it almost kind of becomes the bones of the movie. Um, and again, we got into on the host, a, a lot of the double and triple meanings going on in that film uh, and spirited away has that. a lot of Miyazaki's work has that um, uh, a feature of the Japanese language that I recently learned about is uh, you know, because of its, it's kind of sibilically uh, structured nature, uh, it's characters representing syllables or being lone characters from Chinese. Uh, there's a lot of wordplay within, uh, within, you know, originally written in Japanese art, uh, which I think is very interesting. And again, I think those multiple meanings going on in the host, which we talked about on that episode, um, are going to pair really nicely. Um, our second pod of films, uh, we are going to be looking at um, uh, mostly Mexican films. Actually, it, well, films for Mexican directors, I guess I should say. Um, Arthur mentioned Pan's Labyrinth, so I'm going to use the other Del Toro film. Uh, I kind of had both on deck. Uh, but we'll be looking at The Devil's Backbone, uh, Hellboy 2, and Itu Mama Tambien. Again, Hellboy 2 uh, being the most explicitly fantastical. Uh, but again, I think there is that whole sequence in the troll market that just brings to mind Spirited Away in such a big, big way. It's a fantastic um, moment, yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, it'll be interesting in this class to have a coming-of-age film that's about an adult experiencing arrested development in the wake of the death of a parent, uh, which is a lot of what's going on in Hellboy 2. Um, so I think it'll be kind of interesting in an E2 Mama Tambien, a coming-of-age story about uh, young men. Um, and uh, again, the hidden world they're finding is the world that's been hidden from them uh, 
by class. Um, and again, they're both uh, class disparities and uh, differences are a huge part of that film. We talked about it a lot when we covered it on the show, so I'll go too into that too much. And then Devil's Backbone, which we covered uh, for our spinoff show, but is uh, that that is long ago lost to the ether. Uh, but boy, howdy, is that a good movie? Uh, we talked about it. Dustin's making a look. We talked about it for. Uh... No, I don't think it's oh, lost. We... I think it's still in the feed. No, we never actually oh. talked about it. We watched it, but oh, we never that's recorded. Right. We never recorded. That's correct. There you go. That's what there happened. There you have it. Well, we all watched it together, and boy, is it a great film. Uh, much like uh, *Pan's Labyrinth*, which Archer, Arthur mentioned, Arthur mentioned, uh, it is uh, set in the, on the backdrop of uh, fascist Spain. Um, well, uh, on the eve of fascist Spain, I guess we should say. Um, it's a little bit earlier in that timeline than *Pan's Labyrinth*, uh, but it is uh, much like all these films we've talked about, very much invested in. Uh, death and social upheaval uh, and hidden worlds that children have access to or young people have access to. Finally, we'll wrap things up uh, with our, a very American-centric pod. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, parts of season one of The Wire. Uh, we're mostly just going to be focusing on the arc of the character Wallace, played by a very, very young Michael B. Jordan. Uh, we'll also be looking at The Wizard of Oz and The Florida Project. Uh, again, The Wizard of Oz uh, it, we're probably going to have to talk about that original uh, text, uh, the, the book uh, that it's based on, and it, it's kind of a political trappings uh, and the political ideologies of its author. Uh, but both that book and that film are so intrinsically tied to the American, well, the Great Depression and the American experience of it. Um, so I think that kind of really does go hand in hand with Spirited Away in a lot of interesting ways. I mean, the, that aspect of art in the wake of uh, economic recession are far from the only link that those two films have. Uh, I think with the Florida Project, we get some really interesting magical realism uh, there at the end of the film. But another film that's complicating the relationships between parents and children uh, and asking how children experience worlds that they barely understand. Uh, and again, with uh, The Wire looking at that Wallace arc, we won't have nearly enough time to watch that whole show. That's going to be kind of a truncated portion but I think looking at Wallace's arc is really interesting because uh, obviously it doesn't get uh, less magical or fantastical than The Wire. And yet uh, the world of the drug trade and uh, the war on drugs is as fictional and made up a world as ever there was one. Uh, it's something that people made, uh, created and unleashed into the world. Uh, and it is very much a hidden world that very few people have access to. Uh, and there are rules to navigating uh, the drug trade in Baltimore, just like there are rules to navigating the bathhouse in Spirited Away. So I think that three, those three pods of films will look at how they overlap, culture, uh, how they overlap, compare and contrast these different uh, depictions uh, from different countries of you know, films that take place uh, amongst uh, you know, economic strife uh, and the fallout of those things and how that impacts the children growing up in those worlds. So yeah, kind of a, a, a big sweeping class uh, but I, I think we're going to be threading the same needle and mostly kind of comparing and contrasting um, all the, these different tales. I think it'll be a good time. Very cool, very cool. Um, I, as I was watching the chats and seeing you guys' ideas, I was thinking a little bit about your syllabi. And uh, just before I give my own, just a, a three films I thought about were uh, Catherine Briel's two uh, fantasy films or fairy tale films, Bluebeard and The Sleeping Beauty. Would be just interesting, you know, just throw in that mix. And then um, Alex Proyas's um, Brandon Lee uh, star vehicle, The Crow, would be just something. Oh, totally. Dig it. Yeah. Just something else to think about uh, in those terms. Uh, but with my own syllabus, what I thought I would do is focus on the amusement park itself as an aesthetic 
and just has as it's deployed in various uh, kinds of filmmaking. And so Spirit Away, having its setting to be an abandoned music park where now these spirits now gather, uh, sort of a haunted location, is interesting. And uh, one way uh, in which you see some of the same kind of hauntedness, but without any of the spirituality, supernaturality, is in Ryan Gosling's directorial debut, uh, Lost River, uh, which uh, de- deploys a lot of this to sort of show the decay of an economic situation in a similar way to Spirit Away uh, of a Detroit. And so I, I think its use of imagery is pretty fascinating and uh, might be just one way to think about how one would use that sort of garish kind of lighting that he uses anyway uh, to, in a live-action film, you know, engage with that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I like that pick. I was I was kind of thinking about when he was talking about his syllabus, so I, I, I think that's a great call. Yeah, I, I like that movie a lot anyway. It's just a very, very good movie. Um, the next thing I would move into then... Uh, would be, uh, maybe I would only use a sequence from it. I don't know if I want to use the whole film, but the initial film that has now the uh, spawned the uh, Amazon series, Hannah. Yep. Uh, Joe writes yeah, Hannah, nice. uh, where we have, uh, you know, again, the Kate Blanchett as this sort of big bad wolf character inside the big bad wolf head of this defunct amusement park. And uh, the sort of last battle sequence that takes place there is uh, really pretty fascinating aesthetically and the way in which that using that amusement park to engage with uh, government secrecy and uh, government sort of special operations and uh, just the spy programs in general and uh, paramilitary kind of stuff might be uh, a fascinating thing to think about and the way in which that is an amusement park ride in the way that it's advertised. And Joe Rice sort of turns it on its head into something of a nightmare, which I think is kind of fascinating uh, to contemplate. Uh, then I want to use Escape from Tomorrow, uh, the bootleg film inside the Disneyland Fun Park that is super surreal, weird and wonky, and just sort of uh, engaging with this sort of false fantasy world, the false fantasy idea of American ideals of the family, and of parenting, and of childhood, and uh, sort of just throwing those all into a terrible, bloody mix. Uh, really, really fun, interesting, uh, in terms of just the history of sneaking cameras into Disneyland or Disney World. I think it's Disney World that they use for the film. Uh- yeah, it's it's world, which is a big reason that I thought of the Florida Project as well. Is yeah, that the the hidden uh, uh, grossness that you don't normally think about when you think about how the economy of Orlando runs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, the, the the scuzz that has to happen for uh, the most magical place on earth to exist. Yeah, Florida Project is a movie I did think about as well a little bit, but it's only that sort of last moment. I mean, it's sort of like the, the totally the totally drop there. So yeah. I mean, I think definitely the day you do escape from tomorrow, you do show the clip from the Florida project, that last moment there, because I think there's a way in which they dovetail together. That's, that's kind of fascinating and just sort of synopsize that plot uh, a little bit as, as sort of a reference uh, to that. The last film that I want to use is um, Pirates of the Caribbean uh, huh. because it's a ride that turned into a movie. Meta, yeah. yeah. And uh, just sort of thinking about the postmodernity of all that, those yeah. particular kinds of aesthetics, and the way in which that births into a cinematic franchise that is something slightly different. And so that that's a different use of the amusement park in cinema insofar as it is just this ride. And uh, there's some footage. Uh, I, I, I've, I've seen, I saw the Pirates of the Caribbean probably three or four times before I ever went to Disneyland. Uh, because um, on the Disney Channel, they used to have these sort of Imagineer mm-hmm. um, kind of little special documentaries, and you just watched, you know, whatever came on next. So if it was, you know, those uh, old 50s, you know, Savannah African Lion movies or whatever came on, you just watched whatever was happening, Old Yeller moving on into whatever. And one of those things I watched a few times was some of those um, kind of infomercial advertisements of Disneyland. 
and uh, seeing some of the um, you know creativity behind the effects of uh, the Pirates of the Caribbean. So I think screening that alongside the film and seeing the ways in which those particular characters or puppets or mechanics, whatever you would call them, are sort of being mirrored in that film are it's a fascinating thing to think about a ride with no narrative, turning it into something that's a really, I mean, well-constructed narrative, you know, whether you like it or not. It's a well-constructed, you know, three-act narrative. And how you do that with a ride and how that in, that enfranchisement of that ride into something cinematic is, again, just an interesting sort of meta process uh, to consider. They've done more narratively with that ride than dozens of filmmakers have done with video game movies. Yeah. That's totally. N- not weirdly. Wrong. You know, all this talk about uh, amusement parks has reminded me that I made a joke about Dustin being on vacation earlier, and I want to assure our listeners that Dustin is not going on any vacations in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, he had real reasons to be traveling. I just like to roast him anytime he has fun. He doesn't deserve to have fun. It's true. I, well, for the record, I had a funeral to go to, and it was in Colorado, and there are mountains there. And so I went um, with my children to the mountains, uh, which is quite COVID safe. So, yes. Yes. You brought your children back home from the mountains too, right? Uh, plural. Well, from okay. the mountain. Well, let's no. not say anything. <laughs> let's, let's let's not get anything else caught on tape, shall we? Let's move on and do. Let's I think do it's what time. We came here to do. Yeah, let's get yeah. down to business. It's Yes, indeed, dear listener, and that business is, as always, analysis. So let's just talk about the decayed corruptitude of capitalism and uh, consumerism that this film engages. Well, it's it's funny, Dustin. I, I had thought about bringing the show up in my syllabus and decided it really didn't fit. Um, but you, you mentioned the, the Ryan Gosling film, which I haven't seen, but you kind of mentioned these decayed urban spaces that it, in Detroit that it uses. Uh, and it made me think of this documentary series that um, – it's been off the air for quite a while now, but I stumbled across on Hulu, um, I don't know, late last year. It's called Abandoned. Uh, it's hosted by a professional skater named uh, Rick uh, McCrank. Uh, and Rick goes around to these various abandoned shopping malls, um, just all sorts of places. Uh, each episode is usually focused on a city or a region. Um, uh, one episode that I uh, liked quite a great deal was Route 66. So that one was a road trip as opposed to one city. Uh, but looking at all the uh, abandoned things along Route 66 is, man, it is, it's just a giant ghost town. It's one 3,000-mile-long ghost town. Um, and that is kind of, there's always something, I, I say all that to say, uh, America is uh, a graveyard in more ways than one, but it sure is just littered with abandoned shit. Um, and uh, it, it was interesting to learn about this phenomenon of abandoned amusement parks in Japan, which I was previously completely unaware of. I was too, and I think it's interesting the use of the word ghost town. I think is 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 apt because obviously this yeah. is now a amusement park that is a ghost town is populated by spirits, right? These these actual sort of ghosts. But of course, the the sort of primary requirement uh, for ghosthood is death. And it does seem that the diagnosed cause of death is rampant consumer um, capitalism. It, it, it is well because it, yeah, there's always a better, funner, more convenient way to do something, right? Which is how Route 66 abandons, or in the case of, of Japan, there, these amusement parks get abandoned due to you know Route 66 gets abandoned because they build better highways, economics change. Uh, others places with Detroit or you know with Spirited Away, these abandonments happen because of yeah, great financial collapse because of the weight 
uh, of capitalism not being able to bear itself. Really. Right. Yeah. And then ghost towns in so far as the small towns is concerned is when Walmart comes in, right, and all the little yep. shops go shut down. Yep. I mean, yep. it's the same kind of idea. And so, I mean, I, it does seem that uh, these film, this film in particular and films like it do sort of diagnose uh, a, a disease that, is, um, that has a mortality rate. Um, that's interesting that, that the, these uh, set of processes bring death in their wake and they leave these graveyards uh, again uh, to think of the ghost town as a graveyard of capitalism is an interesting way to sort of reframe that narrative and then that capitalism's ghosts continue to haunt uh, you know our American or you know Western or global psyches. Uh, that's I, again. I don't know if I have a whole lot more to say about it than that, but it does sort of, sort of put a a particular kind of framework around it, which does then resonate with the opening lines of the Communist Manifesto, which is there, there is a specter haunting capitalism today, and uh, so you know we you know can't do a day of this kind of uh, film without quoting old Uncle Carl. And uh, so, yeah. Well, hey, look, look, uh, normally there's plenty of reason to get mad at us for invoking Carl, listener. But those three heads, I'm telling you what, the three <laughs> bouncing green heads look like uh, KM if, if they look like anybody. They do kind of, yeah. They, they definitely have a very Soviet kind of look as well. E Ebert pointed uh, that out. Uh, I can't take credit for that. He pointed that out in his revisit. But nice. I was like, damn, you're on the money there, Roger. Uh, yeah, I, I'm with you, Dustin. I don't know that there's, uh, I think the, the one other aspect though, you know, you, you said that you're not really sure how much more there's to tease out. I think no face really does kind of enter into the picture when we're talking about this, right? Uh, he realizes because of the, uh, the river spirit, which has been, you know, polluted, uh, if capitalism creates anything, it's a uh, pollution after that, maybe jobs sometimes, uh, but, uh, the river spirits polluted and gives a bunch of gold to everybody and no face goes, Oh, well, if I just give people gold, they'll do what I want. Uh, and that does break, not only break the economy of the bathhouse, uh, and the proper functioning of the bathhouse, it turns out that no face, uh, his, his gold's fake. It's worth nothing. It, it is just, he, he's desperate for, and, you know, not that there's anybody, uh, specifically to think of, uh, when you talk about a character like this, but he's just somebody that wants to throw around money and get attention and respect and adulation. Um, and, and consume, uh, literally and consume, consume everyone around him, right? Yeah, well, he starts consuming uh, others, other beings when Sin won't, uh, has no interest in his money. Uh, it, it is like an, an anger that Sin cannot be bought, uh, or Chihiro, uh, Sin at that point in the film, um, can't be bought. And then, yeah, drives, drives no face all, all, all angry and cranky, right? He starts gobbling people up. Uh, and there is something interesting about his, his need to purge, right? The, we're talking about consumption, and it is a big part of this film, right? It's the inciting incident is Jahiro's parents can't stop eating this delicious ghost food. Uh, and it is uh, with uh, multiple characters who couldn't stop consuming, be it uh, No Face or um, uh, Haku, uh, both have taken more than they should have, and both have to purge themselves. They got to they got to eat that magic vomit dumpling. Uh, I don't know. It's it's interesting that that Miyazaki frames this film in Studio Ghibli. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, a tour though he is, and boy howdy, uh, kind of kind of that's one author that it, it it's okay to bring up a tour theory with. I think because he is a pretty specific uh, individual in terms of what he what his teams create uh, what he had he shepherds his teams towards creating it's, it's always specific but i don't know that that vomiting aspect that uh the film brings in uh, that need to 
get get the ghost out of you, uh, to put it another way, Dustin, I think is, is interesting and ties into what you were talking about. Well, and I think that moment in which we pigify the parents, right, which is a great callback to Pinocchio yeah. and uh, whatever that it's island. Totally. What's that island's name? I forget now. It's like pleasure or fun. I don't remember something stupid like that island when everybody turns into donkeys, yeah. right? Because they could just keep engaging in all these sort of bad behaviors. So Disney moralizes in a way there in sort of a puritanical kind of way. But here um, the line that dad says as he's just taking this food is I got cash, I got credit cards. You know, it, it's a sort of litany of what looks like uh, capitalist power. Uh, consumer capitalist power specifically, and uh, then that consumption again, and the snorting sounds. I mean, it, it was it's funny how they flag because I'd never seen the film before, and so they're flagging ahead of time that they're going to turn into pigs, and so they're eating this food and they're eating it so fast, and there's a couple of snorts uh, that take mm-hmm. place as they're doing so, and I go, are they going to turn into pigs? And of course, they end up doing just exactly that. And then by turning into pigs, they end up being attacked and used and uh, threatened to be used as for f- food for uh, the other consuming class, you know, the spirits themselves. And that's what capitalism does is it forces us to eat and eat and eat, and then we are fattened up and eaten. Fed back into the machine. Yeah. Vicious cycle. So There it is. Uh, it is it, um, interesting in that scene. I, Arthur sent us an article, Dustin. I don't know if you had time to read it. I, I did not. not. Yeah, but Arthurson has an interesting article um, about a lot of the hidden, I'd touch on wordplay uh, within Japanese art. There's a lot going on in this film in terms of the naming of characters. Like, uh, I mean, uh, Yababa just means bathhouse witch. Uh, Zaniba means money witch. Like, uh, all, almost all of the characters' names tell us something about them, or there is just a specificity to the name. Uh, but the, the scene where uh, Chihiro and her parents arrive at the abandoned amusement park, a lot of the, the characters... Um, have dual meanings. Uh, they're all talking about the food, but they're also is like just the the food is telling them it's trapped in some cases. I'm gonna specify very the, the Japanese characters. Yes, that are on the buildings, yeah. not not people or things. Thank you, Arthur. Yeah, yeah. The the Japanese characters, the the writing on the buildings and the signage on the buildings. Yeah, are all advertising the food, but the the characters, the Japanese characters that have been used and the orders in which they have been used. Uh, often convey multiple things. Sometimes, really? basically, yeah, yeah. It's very interesting. You should read that article. And sets um, up some I'll of pull the it floor. up. Yeah, I'll pull it up uh, just so we can credit the author while we're we're talking. Um, yeah, it sets I, up a lot of the same I, foreshadowing that I think you picked up on uh, as far as them becoming pigs. I think uh, it's it's referenced in the article that some of these characters and and the meanings or the dual meanings of the words are foreshadowing the the parents' fates in, in mm. those moments. And so that is. It was a really neat article to kind of see that. Obviously, one of the things you don't think about as a Western audience is how those things come into play. And, you know, the obviously you kind of, if you're not fluent in Japanese or, or familiar with that language or, or those markings, you kind of just ignore it, I think, and put it in the background and like, oh, it's a nice aesthetic. Um, but there's so much detail just even in those backgrounds, a real great use of, you know, mise-en-scene, as we like to talk about here uh, with, you know, the auteur's work. And so I, I think it's really cool how that, that all plays into this. Did you find that article, Dalton? Uh, I did. It was for RogerEbert.com, and it was uh, Jana uh, Moniha. Uh, it's M-O-N-J-I. Uh, not going to take another stab at it. Uh, but, but yeah, it's over at RogerEbert.com, uh, published August 12th, 2015. Yeah, Jana just kind of lays out uh, some, yeah, really interesting stuff uh, about uh, that scene in particular, I think, yeah, there is some, I don't know. It is really just focused on that scene. I, for some reason was remembering that they, she talked about a bit more about 
I think she talks about some of the, of the names, but yeah, it's really yeah. kind of a frame by frame breakdown of that amusement park, and it's it's a really cool yeah. article. Interesting. Try to remember to link yeah, to that is, in the show notes. And it is, as Arthur mentioned, you know, it is something that's lost on us as English speakers. Um, but that is something that I'm always fascinated by and always frustrated by uh, when signage is not translated uh, mm-hmm. in a foreign film. I always go, oh, I want to know what it means. Um, and I'm even more excited to know that sometimes, yeah, there's very clever things are being hidden. It's not just, uh, I, lo- I love that about these movies, man. Um, I-, I know we- we've talked about kind of the pace of this film uh, and how, and for me, it did ha- not always engage me uh, emotionally. I was a little checked out because I was having to strain so hard to engage intellectually. Uh, but there is just kind of a pure magic about uh, these Studio Ghibli films, and that, that is part of it. All of these meanings that you're not picking up on on any kind of like uh, active level, but there's so much going on that you do just get sucked into them. Uh, it is uh, a, a real specificity of the form uh, of animation, but also the way that this studio does animation. That it's yeah, there's something trans transporting trans well, I, I, transportative. That's not a word. It is today. Maybe all words are made uh, up. That's true. It just I don't know, man. There's a real. Uh, just magic world in the back of this movie quality uh, to all of his films that I've seen. That Man, it messes me up a little bit. I want to move on to another Miyazakian preoccupation, and that is environmentalism. And yeah, uh, just totally. uh, the Haku being the spirit of the river, and uh, the reason why Haku, and one of the sort of magical rules of this world is that if you forget your name, you have no power. And part of the reason why Haku has forgotten his name is because they put up an apartment complex over his particular river that or stream or creek or whatever it was, you know, I, I can't imagine it. You can't put an apartment complex in a river river. So I imagine it's more of a stream um, that he is uh, the spirit of and uh, that Miyazaki does frequently sort of talk about that sort of uh, environmental wreckage of the world. Um, sometimes in, in terms of um, sort of nuclear holocaust and weapons proliferation, but in this case, it does seem to be just the building of buildings and sort of the, these urban sprawl that's causing this. Well, in his previous film, which we've discussed on the show, the film immediately preceding Spirited Away, uh, Princess Mononoke, is a lot about that too. It's just we can't help as people but build domiciles and then things to support those domiciles and on and on it goes. We just can't help but mess with the natural world once we get past a certain point uh, in terms of our, our societal development and our, you know, how we organize our lives. Uh, and it is, yeah, it's a very specific preoccupation of his, Dustin, and it does kind of tie back into really some stuff we've already talked about, like with abandoned spaces. Uh, nature reclaims what we abandon, uh, and sometimes in the case of, you know, the river spirit that they think is a stink spirit, uh, sometimes, it, you know, it reclaims what we put in it. It's This is mine now, and we, you know, sometimes irrevocably uh, damage uh, a space that we either abandon or neglect in some capacity, right? Um, yeah, it's interesting. Again, you mentioned it is a preoccupation of his, uh, but it's also, you know, there's a reason I brought up the host, right? The, the Han River plays such a huge part in that film. Um, it, it is just a, yet another, you know, across cultures, uh, people notice this, man. Like, we, you can't help but notice the way we treat the, the natural world around us uh, if, if you have eyes to see. Yeah, I think there's something interesting about the way Miyazaki approaches his environmentalism, which is always very diagnostic and pessimistic. That sure. uh, when 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 he does that kind of environmental engagement, 
what he wants to represent on the on the mise-en-scene and the screen and in the narrative of the film is always a sort of repercussion, the negative sort of, you know, uh, uh, just, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, wreckage that's just left after yeah. those things take place. And usually there's a sort of character that does some kind of healing work insofar as that character or group of characters will see that and will do something to sort of help that particular spirit or that particular forest or whatever it happens to be that, that they sort of, you know, okay, well, we'll, we'll clean up some of the mess. But what, the, what what he never does, which I think is interesting, he never takes a Tolkienian turn in which um, in Tolkien, um, in his mythology, there are elves who are able to sort of construct worlds and cities and civilizations that are really kind of engaged uh, and uh, protective of nature, yet they continue to sort of, there's no sort of environmental way forward. There's no um, use of solar or wind energy or those kind of things in a way that's got low impact. Uh, there's, I, just, I never see that in Miyazaki, and I just... Yeah, I can't, uh, I, again, I'm, I'm, I've only seen a handful, as I've said, but yeah, in the ones that I've seen, I'm, it does, I seem to, they, they all seem to agree with this through line, or this point that you're making, Dustin, which, yeah, it's a zero-sum situation, like, human beings will exist and will destroy the natural world around them. There is no harmony. Uh, there can't be. Uh, they, these are two forces that must, by their existence, push against each other. Uh, it, it is kind of nihilistic, and it's, you know, uh, kind of Russ Cole uh, diagnosis of humanity being uh, maybe a, a flaw in evolution or a flaw in nature, something that exists separate from nature that is part of nature. Uh, you're right. There, there is a nihilism to it, but you're right that there's also always a restorative character within which I think is interesting. You know, there is no higher being that like forces industry to coexist with nature, but there is often either a higher being or just a human of good faith uh, who, who works to restore things. So even while there's a nihilism about like our ability to do right by nature, I think there is also uh, an optimism about the, the ability for things to get better. Maybe. Yeah. And I don't mean that to elevate Tolkien or to knock Miyazaki. I don't, I no, I didn't think you did. Well, well, and I don't think you meant it to knock. Uh, maybe you did mean it to knock Tolkien a little. Tolkien a little bit. Um, I didn't read one way or the other. It is just two artists kind of concerned with similar things, but very much uh, approaching them from different philosophical points of view. Yeah, I was going to say that that kind of cultural disconnect of, of sure. these two men. Yeah, and the the times in which they're working, I think as well. That that does make a difference as well. I think, but I just want to point out the sort of general pessimism of Miyazaki. There, um, I think it's just worthy of notice. Um, well, okay, paging Dr. Freud, can we talk about double mothers and grandmothers and babies and uh, what's going on there? Obviously, we've got the obscene mother beginning who is, you know, again, just mama, Chichero's mama is kind of the worst, um, and her dad is also the worst. I um, love love his uh, schlubby little bod, and, uh, d you know, that, that artwork is great there. But uh, so with good. Zinbaba and Yubaba, are those the words? Uh, Zaniba and Yubaba. So, uh, again, these mothers that are, you know, again, bent on consumption and the uh, sort of gathering of gold and of jewels or of just this sort of obsessive, you know, babification, that, that this weird arrested development they're sort of forcing on this. As, as Arthur picked Coraline for one of his films, one of the things that seems to be going on in that film and another one of Neil Gaiman's films, Mirror Mask, is the sort of infantilization that mothers are sometimes, um, you know, sort of, 
foisted uh, with as a as a as a um, as a damning uh, bit of uh, criticism that they uh, will not allow this baby to grow up and that she will not allow Chichiro to take her own name. You know, she's sort of want to put her in the servile, again, sort of infantilized position. And then the baby character itself, you know, voiced by the great Tara Strong, as we've already mentioned. Uh, there's, there's something Freudian going on here. I don't, I don't have any more to say about it than that other than just sort of naming and identifying it. Do you guys have any thoughts on um, those two characters and the way that they're mirrored and twinned? I don't know. I find them very interesting, kind of really more in the terms of the things that we were already talking about. Uh, not necessarily environmentalism specifically, but just uh, there, there are rules, there are absolutes. There are things that happen and will happen and have already happened. And uh, the rules of the ghost bathhouse uh, and this ghost world, like uh, it's interesting when, you, you know, Yubaba decides she's going to let Jiro go. She still has to test her, right? There isn't, and it's not a, she's like, well, that's the rules. She has to give Chihiro a job if she keep, insists on asking for a job. There isn't really a malice to anybody in this film. They just do what they do, mm-hmm. which I think is interesting. Uh, and again, like No Face, um, I, I did find in some research that No Face is a character that is not uh, ex- previously existing within Japanese folklore. I guess some of these characters uh, have some basis or are uh, inspired by some specific aspects of, you know, folklore and uh, fa- fairy tale. Um, but as far as I could find, and as, you know, as far as anybody seems to be aware from, you know, where I look, uh, no face is kind of well agreed to be a, a Miyazaki original. Uh, and he, he is kind of this destructive force, but even no face can be fixed, right? Like no face just does what no face does. Uh, Yababa and, and Zaniba do what they do. And it is interesting. I, I, I don't know. Be, I, I'm, I'm very interested in their rivalry because we don't really get a clear picture of what that rivalry really looks like. And I think that complicates what you're talking about, Dustin. Uh, I think, and I thought a lot about yin and yang, just kind of in their disposition mm, towards sure. how they treat uh, Chihiro uh, at, throughout the movie. But also I think they both stand as the full embodiment of, of the two, I think, uh, ideologies here. I, I think that Yababa is very much that representation of capitalism at its full form. Whereas uh, Zinaba is very much in the natural world, she does live in this very remote swamp land cabin, uh, and keeps to herself and seems to be one at home in nature. While uh, Yababa, you know, is is the master of the bathhouse, and so they kind of seem to be the heads of the two clashing ideas of the natural world and the the capitalist world. Yeah, I, I think there's some of that going on as well. And I also, th- you know, again, just to sort of invoke Freud a little bit more to just sort of add another flavor to our discussion, it, there's a way in which uh, all the characters, with the exception of Haku, that uh, Chichiro um, encounters are sort of uh, id, libidinal kind of desire, just sort of manifest uh, sure. in various ways. Mm-hmm. And uh, that Yababa, ya, Yababa, and Zibaba, Zimba, Zinaba, Zinaba, and see, Yubaba. Yinababa, meh, meh, meh. Ba 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 ran. Um, You're doing your best, and it's very very good. Um, that those a lot of syllables. Those are all sort of again manifestations of just sort of drives working in the world, and then that they are sort of destructive, and they are sort of um, thanatox, thanatoxic. Um, that they are. I think that's a made up word too. Um, but they are you know bringing about death wherever they go, mm-hmm. and so I think that's just interesting. You know, to sort of add a little um, Freudian layer uh, to what we're thinking about with the films. Um, 
you know, narrative structure. Uh, or, I mean, the narrative structure itself, I mean, I just, I guess, again, this is one of those things you just sort of throw out. It's got the three parts, you know, the three tests, fairy tale structure. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's, I think, very plot light. You know, Dalton mentioned trying to figure out the plot, and I think it's very light. You know, I've got to get my name back and save my parents. And that's expanded into this very fascinating world. I think Miyazaki's very interested in exploring this this world that he's created and the, the people of this world and the creatures of this world and what that can represent culturally and ideologically. Uh, and he's able to just kind of unify that with this point A to point B plot. Yeah. So yeah, Alice in Wonderland, Dorothy and Oz. I think it's all very similar kinds of yeah. uh, you know structure there. Yeah, I get it. falling into a hidden world. Yeah, it is, is very much of a piece with a lot of what we you know have come to expect from uh, you know various fairy tales and folklore. Sure. And I, I think it really does tap into that thing you know Dalton brought up how this was inspired by his friend's daughter, I believe, and he he, he wrote this for ten year old girls. And I think that's the beauty of it. There is this simplicity. Uh, that a 10-year-old can follow rather easily, but there is this much larger depth once you do begin to explore the world. And I think there's a great power in that sort of storytelling and also a great craftsmanship in that sort of storytelling. For sure. Yeah, because everything that happens is, while simple, uh, it's very emotionally complicated. And, and the things that Chihiro is having to experience are weird and scary and confusing. You know, the way that... But the older you get as a child, the more glimpses of the adult world you're getting start to make both more sense and less sense. Mm-hmm. Um, which, uh, yeah, I think this film does capture in a way that's really, really kind of beautiful uh, and and complicated. Again, uh, because you're, yeah, as we've talked about this plot, it is very straightforward, but there is so much room and space given to just just let just watching stuff happen. Yeah, just hanging out, just spend some time in the world. Uh, and really getting a feel for its for its uh, emotions and its vibe, uh, and I think that does a lot for you know what you're talking about, Dustin. The, the desire is such a big factor in this film, um, and uh, not only kind of as a critique of capitalism, but you know just uh, also the, the desire to be loved and appreciated and to be known. All of these things kind of come up at different points through different characters. Uh, I'm thinking of of Lynn. Uh, who's uh, in the American or the U.S. dub, uh, voiced by Susan Egan, who played Meg in Hercules. Always, always fun when you spot a spot an ear, your, your ear spots a voice you recognize. Uh, but her character, you know, is is trying to really uh, bring sin into this world, and and even she's like, man, look, it's it's hey, look, look at all the free food we're getting tonight because you cleaned up the river spirit. And since so like, I, I don't, I can't care. Uh, I want to, or not, she that I want to. She just feels, I don't know, it's, it's kind of hard to articulate now thinking back on it, uh, but it's, it's a great scene that kind of gets at these, these desires you're talking about, Dustin. Um, and, and there's, you know, there's no fairy tale, you know, in fairy tales, there's often something to be gained, right? You go on the adventure to get something. The only thing uh, Chihiro ever gets is a cure for other people, right? She takes responsibility for mistakes other people's, uh, for mistakes other people make, uh, so that she can get her parents back. There's no benefit to her for going on this journey, right? It is it is just about surviving and getting through it, yeah. uh, which, again, making that a- that desire be such a big aspect of the story, and yet the only thing up for grabs for Chihiro is a return to normalcy somewhat is very interesting. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, if we don't have any other burning thoughts, let's render a verdict on uh, Spirited Away. What do we say? Shelf or trash? I go to you first. Dalton, what do you say? 
Yeah, I'm shelf. I gotta have, I'm gonna have to watch this movie again. Uh, as we're talking about it, I'm wanting to watch it again because it is so pretty to look at. Uh, every character design is so cool and interesting, and uh, there is just such a fluidity to the animation that is really breathtaking. Uh, and as we've talked about, there's a lot here. There's kind of a simplicity of theme, like there's kind of some key core key things that uh, the film seems to want to touch on. But I think there are a lot of uh, nuanced layers to those kind of big overarching themes that get touched on. Uh, I think we have barely scratched the surface of this film. Yeah, for, sure. for sure. For sure. For sure. What do you say, Arthur? Shelf or trash? I have to say shelf. I, I think it's it's a fantastic, beautiful movie. Um, and it's it's one of those things every time I watch one of these movies, we, we did Cagliostro a couple of weeks ago. And watching Spirited Away here, every time I come to one of these Miyazaki films, I, I tell myself I've got to go watch the others. And I really have no excuse now that the Studio Ghibli collection is on HBO Max. And so one of these days I'll sit down and do that. Uh, because there's so many. I mean, I probably could have put any other Studio Ghibli title in this list, in this tournament. And it probably would have gotten to the finals, I think. Yeah. I think My Neighbor Totoro, Howl's Moving Castle, uh, Kiki's Delivery Service would have all done really well. And Spirited Away is the first one that kind of popped in my head and, and I think is maybe the most known. Uh, and, you know, here we are. So, yeah, I think it's a shelfable film, definitely. All right. Well, you heard my review. So, shelf. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> obviously, <laughs> this is the kind of movie that I like. And uh, so, yes, it would definitely go on my shelf as well. Let us transition now to our uh, bracket. All right. Well, we are in week three, day two. So we are already down to the round two matchups. Uh, so I'm going to highlight those for you real quickly, and we're kind of at the tail end of this. Uh, when you hear this episode, you'll still have a few hours to vote, so make sure you get your vote in. Um, but we're going to look kind of wh what is currently happening uh, in the middle of this tournament. So the first match of the day was Atomic Blonde uh, versus Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Right now, Atomic Blonde uh, is doing really well. T uh, Atomic Blonde beat out Ocean's Eleven. Buffy beat out True Romance, I think, in a bit of a surprise in the first round. Uh, the second match... Fried Green Tomatoes is taking on Mission Impossible, and it is close. Uh, and so Fried Green Tomatoes took out Gravity in a really close uh, round one match. Uh, Mission Impossible and the Equalizer, another very close when it came down. You know, Denzel's Charisma versus Tom Cruise's Charisma. And, and Tom Cruise won out with uh, probably a little more well-known film in Mission Impossible. Uh, in match three, we have the Babadook taking on Little Mermaid. Uh, Babadook, what a great matchup. It's fun. Uh, Babadook beat out uh, the monster. Uh and Little Mermaid beat out uh, Martin Riggs uh, in Lethal Weapon. Uh, we I all, love that. I love that so much. We were all That's too so old funny. for it. Uh, and then, yeah. You know what? If, if, uh, if uh, Danny Glover had had that little vocal solo, maybe Lethal Weapon would have won. That's it. Um, and then finally, uh, in the last match of the day, we have Brave versus Green Street Hooligans. Uh, my favorite highlight of this tournament so far is Brave just absolutely routing absolutely destroying 300 in round one i think that's the funniest uh, thing that's happened so far uh, gerard butler versus gerard butler yeah it's great and uh green street hooligans uh took down the joker so we don't live in a society apparently i am i am just I, look i i think maybe people just don't give a shit about joker which is fine i really i i am happy to have an excuse to continue to not ha see that movie that is a shock to me. Uh, it is to me I'm as not well. surprised. I'm not surprised to see Brave pretty handily uh, feeding Green Street Hooligans its own lunch. Uh, I, I was surprised to see uh, Joker go down so hard. Uh, I'm also a little surprised uh, as Arthur's reading these matchups. I am looking at the current uh, 
vote totals. Uh, man, the Babadook is, uh, this is a low round of voting for round three, it seems like, in terms of overall participation. But man, Babadook is just walking all over Little Mermaid right now. And that's kind of been my pick, I think, to go to the finals, if not win. I think the Babadook's going to be the, the next episode that we have. Uh, but hey, Fried Green Tomatoes could pull it off. So we'll see what happens there. I believe in Kathy Bates. <laughs> what do you think, Dalton? What do you think we're actually going to be talking about on <sighs> next week's episode? Well, if we could, I think we can safely assume that the semifinals is going to come down to an Atomic Blonde and Fried Green Tomatoes and the Babadook and Brave. I think the Babadook is definitely going to uh, take Brave. I think Atomic Blonde is going to take Fried Green Tomatoes, but I could be wrong on that. I, I think you're right, though. I think it's it's coming down to the Babadook. I don't. I, I think I'm right there with you. I don't see. I don't see Fried Green Tomatoes stopping the Babadook. I could see Atomic Blonde stopping the Babadook. Um, but, I, you know, I like to be proven wrong. I like fried green tomatoes a lot, both as a uh, dish and as a film. Um, uh, can't wait to talk about the gay subtext of that movie and the uh, gay text that it's based on uh, if we get to talk about You're talking it. about the Bobby. But, hey. Yes. Well, I was talking about fried green tomatoes, <laughs> but I was about LGBT to pivot. <laughs> I was about to pivot to LBGTQ icon, the Babadook. Yes. yes. Uh, <laughs> we have no choice but to stay in a legend. Uh, so here we are. I think the Babadook will be the next film we talk about on the show, probably. I guess we will have to see you keep voting and we'll keep watching. You can keep voting and keep watching and we'll keep talking, I guess. I don't know what I'm saying anymore, but I love you all very much. Thanks for listening. Bye. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.